Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. I am delighted to introduce Dr. Nicola Petrosillo. Dr. Petrosillo is coming to us from one of my favorite cities, Rome. Dr. Petrosillo is the Head of Infection Control and Infectious Disease Service at the University Hospital Campus, Biomedico, in Rome. Dr. Petrosillo, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And uh, thanks to CD Foundation, uh, to Nancy. Uh, I hope that my microphone works. Uh, please give me a feedback. Uh, yes, it's, it's okay. Your microphone is excellent, Dr. Petrosillo. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. My topic uh, is uh, very hot, the burden of Clostridioide difficile infection in the COVID-19 era. And uh, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, repre may represent a risk for uh, C. diff infection because of uh, the derangement of the innate and uh, adaptive immune response due to, to the virus replication, and also for the damage to the host gastrointestinal barrier done by the, this virus. And uh, thirdly, for the detrimental effect to the gut microbiome uh, due to the uh, use and the overuse of antimicrobials that we have seen during the COVID-19 uh, uh, epidemic uh, at home and in the hospital setting. And uh, uh, lastly, because uh, CDI diagnosis during uh, this uh, pandemic may be delayed in COVID-19 patients because uh, diarrhea is often uh, attributed to uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, testing uh, is for CDF was not performed. Um, the, moreover, elderly, uh, elderly who survived uh, COVID-19 have more changes uh, to be exposed to CDF, uh, CDF because of antibiotics, because of more hospitalization. Uh, uh, this represents a higher risk of exposure to CDF and, uh, and uh, elderly who survive may have a gastrointestinal damage because the gastrointestinal tract expresses uh, uh, H2 and TMPR-SS2. Um, and uh, the situation regarding uh, uh, long-term care facilities is extremely worrisome, uh, uh, at least in my, in my country, but also in several countries, uh, as the burden of CDI is far from being determined in these settings, data scant in several countries. 
um, transfer of elderly between hospitals and long-term care facilities increases during a pandemic might, be, might facilitate acquisition and diffusion spread of, of CDI. Um, but the question is, should we be worried about CDF during the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? Uh, we, uh, during this uh, pandemic, we have seen uh, overuse of uh, antibiotics. Uh, we have seen that um, the most severe patients were elderly than uh, older than 65 years, uh, with longer hospital stay, with use of PPI, with comorbidities, chemotherapy, uh, chronic kidney disease, and feeding tubes. Oh, uh, they are all factors for uh, developing uh, CDF infection, uh, and both infection, uh, COVID-19, and CDF present similar digestive manifestations, including diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and uh, abdominal pain. Uh, the, since the beginning, of the pandemic, uh, some cases of CDI in COVID-19 patients uh, were described. This is the case of this report uh, in, uh, in, the early, in March, April 2020. Uh, and some studies uh, uh, reported uh, no differences uh, in the standardized uh, infection rate uh, of CDI between uh, the before and during uh, COVID-19, uh, before the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. Uh, however, the same authors uh, reported a decrease of uh, CD, CD testing uh, because diarrhea in COVID patients was often uh, attributed to, uh, to coronavirus. And they mentioned that our data underscored the continued incidence of hospital onset CDI in, uh, in hospitals. Um, in uh, the, large, the, the largest study on uh, uh, CDI burden uh, in uh, COVID-19 patients uh, that was uh, carried out in Italy, uh, we, we uh, observed uh, 8,400 COVID-19 patients admitted to eight Italian hospitals. Uh, we evidenced an incidence rate of CDI similar to that observed before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, with uh, the uh, independent risk factors represented by previous hospitalization, previous steroid administration, and uh, antibiotics again during the stay. This is the, the, the table with the, the, the multivariable analysis. Uh, also, the, the burden of uh, CDF uh, infection has been assessed uh, in a systematic review and uh, a meta-analysis uh, uh, that uh, is going to be published, uh, uh, assessing the incidence and the prevalence uh, of uh, CDF, uh, CD, CDI, uh, CDF infection in the, during COVID-19 pandemic in COVID-19 uh, patients. In this analysis, the majority of uh, studies uh, reported uh, a decrease in CDI occurrence in COVID-19 patients or no significant differences between uh, the two periods. Um, and this is uh, represented in this, uh, this, uh, this meta-analysis uh, with the comparison of the pre and uh, period during uh, 
COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but what about CDI occurrence in non-COVID-19 patients in the COVID-19 era in the, in the hospital, mainly in the hospital setting? Um, early studies reported a decrease of CDI in uh, infection in uh, uh, patients in the hospital setting, uh, uh, even though the, uh, there was an increase of uh, hospital stays during the during the the, the, the period of the pandemic of uh, COVID-19. But uh, in uh, these studies, uh, in this study, the authors reported also a strict bundle of intervention with precaution barrier and the training, personal protective equipment, patient location, isolation, precaution, and more. Uh, patient environment rooms, common areas, and transit areas, what to do, cleaning staff, uh, chlorination, training enforcement for uh, cleaning staff, sanitary material, health worker environment, patient movement that is very important to limit the transfer to the essential for patients, limiting visit, improving waste management and improving also and hygiene. Uh, recently, uh, data from uh, United States on healthcare uh, associated infection during uh, COVID-19 have, uh, have been published. Uh, the national CDI, the national U.S. CDI uh, standardized infection rate steadily declined in, uh, in uh, the 2019 and remained stable uh, at 0.52 for each quarter in 2020. And this is very interesting because uh, we, uh, during the, the, the COVID-19 period, we see that there was uh, an increase in some healthcare associated infection in uh, many countries, even in, uh, in Italy, in Europe, uh, uh, including uh, uh, central line associated bloodstream infection, uh, urinary tract infection, ventilatory uh, associated pneumonia, uh, less surgical site infection because there were less intervention. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, more uh, MRSA bacteremia uh, due to uh, several factors that uh, can explain that uh, the difficulty to maintain uh, a, a reduction of patient-to-patient -patient transmission by the use by the the, the use of gloves for uh, without uh, changing gloves and the laboratory identified the CDI decreased in. Uh, all the period uh, during 2020 in uh, this uh, report from uh, United States. And uh, okay, in the in the in, uh, in another study in another study in uh, United States uh, covering uh, uh, 148 hospital. Uh, uh, CDI relative rates were not associated uh, with increased monthly rates of COVID-19 discharges. So this is also very interesting uh, because uh, uh, this hospital where uh, are healthcare affiliated hospital uh, studying uh, uh, continuously the healthcare associated infection. Uh, in this study, CDI rates were stable or decreased during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Barrier precautions 
and uh, increased uh, uh, training uh, might have lead to uh, a reduction of CDI. We cannot rule out the, that the rates of CDI might lag due to changes in antimicrobial stewardship uh, or changes in uh, testing practices. And this is another important point to be, to be explored. Uh, because uh, in, uh, in this study, incidence of CDI did not change over time, but there were less CDI tests. What does it mean? Less CDI testing and no change of uh, uh, the rate, the incidence of CDI. Uh, it means that uh, uh, probably we are underestimating the CDI incidence during COVID uh, pandemic because we have uh, 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 in, uh, at least in this study, high risk for CDI antibiotic use that increased, less CDI testing, but the incidence remained stable. Therefore, we should, uh, we should uh, study better factors that have uh, a positive or a negative uh, uh, role in the findings from clinical studies because uh, uh, if we make uh, less tests we, we, we can uh, underestimate the burden of CDI uh, but if we have less movement, uh, less admission, uh, less surgery, uh, we, we obviously we will have less uh, CDI CD infection. Hygiene, isolation, disinfection, barrier measures, uh, when they uh, are improving, there is, uh, of course, less CDI infections. It's very important that the infection prevention and control measures will be maintained. Training, less training, uh, and uh, the use of antibiotics and less uh, uh, attention to antimicrobial stewardship problem that we have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic in several hospitals because of the healthcare workers were more uh, uh, um, more, uh, they took more care about the 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 the, the, the medication they use the, the care for patients less for uh, antimicrobial stewardship. This means more CDI burden in the hospital setting. Uh, as take-home messages, uh, uh, COVID-19 patients have uh, several CDI risks, including uh, overuse of antibiotics, older ages, invasive procedures, and uh, parenteral feeding and comorbidities. However, CDI incidence is lower than expected. Is this the effect of barrier, isolation measures, or less tests? Among non-COVID-19 patients, CDI incidence is lower than that observed in past years. Is this again the effect of the barrier isolation measure, less tests, less admissions, less surgery? As a matter of fact, an effect of infection prevention and control measures, mainly isolation, barrier precaution, disinfection and washing, and the reduced patient's movement is likely. And uh, I think that is uh, the most likely explanation for, uh, for this phenomenon. And when the dust generated by COVID-19 will settle, this uh, remain uh, the main lesson, because uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, infection prevention and control uh, measures could work. And I thank you for your attention. Dr. Petrosillo, thank you so much. That was a really insightful talk. I can tell you here in the States at our national conferences, ID Week, 
as well as the American College of Gastroenterology Conference from last week, there have been a number of uh, retrospective studies, one presented at ID Week, three presenting at the ACG conference, and, you know, they showed a kind of level incidence. Um, but I think that the, this, of course, were retrospective studies, and I think that the factors that you raised really bear thought, which is people were so focused on treating the COVID-19, less, uh, less tests checked, therefore less positive tests, um, and perhaps diagnoses were, were in fact missed. Um, so you're right, I think once the dust settles and we can go back and look at what went wrong and why, um, we'll probably gain more information on the, uh, the incidence of C. difficile within these populations. So we're now going to shift uh, gears and discuss a novel therapeutic classified by the FDA as a microbiota-based live biotherapeutic. I'm so happy to introduce Dr. Barbara McGovern. Dr. McGovern is a physician and infectious disease expert who currently holds the title of Vice President of Medical Affairs at Series Therapeutics. Dr. McGovern will be discussing results from Ecospore 3, a phase 3 placebo-controlled trial of SCR109, an investigational microbiome therapeutic to reduce recurrence of Clostridoides difficile infection. Barbara? Thank you so much, Paul. I, I have to say I remember attending my first conference back in 2015, and the growth of this audience reflects the quality of the conference that Nancy has grown from scratch to the more than 1,000 attendees to get today. So I just want to say kudos to you, Nancy. So I'm going to just move on to the next slide uh, where are my disclosures. I'm an employee of Ceres. And the next slide. As a former ID specialist at Tufts, I had the great honor of working with two co-discoverers of C. diff. John Bartlett and Sherry Orbach. Both of them spoke about the abnormal gut flora that allowed C. diff to survive and cause recurrent infections long before the term gastrointestinal microbiome was even coined. But we have come a long way in our understanding that CDI is a two-hit process characterized by disruption of the microbiome and exposure to the C. diff spores. As you well know, the most common symptom of CDI is diarrhea, often in isolation without any other pathognomonic sign or symptom, which can make diagnosis challenging, as we will hear later. Toxin production is key to CDI pathogenesis and is the hallmark of disease, which can lead to fulminant colitis. As you've heard from prior speakers, the leading risk factor for CDI is exposure to antibiotics, which cause collateral damage to beneficial microbes in the GI microbiome. In fact, before the identification of C. diff as the causative agent, this clinical entity was referred to as antibiotic-associated colitis, which highlights the paradox of treating an antibiotic-associated disease with antibiotics alone. Now, when I look back on it, it just seems incredible to me that when I was in medical school decades ago, I have to admit, we learned about this sea of bacteria living in the GI tract and didn't think about their contribution to human physiology. But antibiotic-induced alterations in microbial metabolism have taught us that the killing of innocent bystander bacteria can have harmful consequences when host defenses against C. diff are impaired. We have learned that the primary bile acids lead to C. diff spore germination, while secondaries inhibit 
germination. And the key microbes associated with bile acid metabolism are phylogenetically constrained and dominated by the firmicutes. In the past, FMT studies have provided a proof of concept of the importance of microbiome recovery. We have observed that within days of FMT, spore-forming firmicutes are gained and pro-inflammatory bacteria are lost. Within about a month or two, we see changes in the bacteroides. So the timing of the changes suggests that firmicutes are the key driver to clinical outcomes as observed earlier by DuPont and colleagues and other distinguished researchers. However, hospitalizations and death following transmission of multi-drug resistant bacteria highlight that FMT products are vulnerable to undetected or emerging infections since donor screening is the mainstay of safety mitigation. We have seen alerts on the transmission of ESBL-producing E. coli, which were captured during very careful prospective follow-up of a clinical trial. We have also seen sugar toxin-producing E. coli transmitted and captured after retrospective review. And although appropriate screening has now been instituted to prevent further cases, you cannot anticipate emerging infections which occur reliably and predictably. As Marty Blazer wrote in his accompanying editorial in the New England Journal, just as infections with hepatitis C and HIV and now ESBL producing E. coli show, we often do not recognize new pathogens until after they have been transplanted to new hosts. This concept is very well illustrated by the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, which led to the quarantine of FMT due to the potential for transmission. In fact, COVID had entered the U.S. for two months before FMT was quarantined, and it was a more than a year into the pandemic before we had appropriate laboratory assays for testing of fecal samples. These special assays were needed because, as you can see, the duration of fecal shedding exceeds respiratory shedding, making nasopharyngeal screening inadequate. In addition, as a former HIV and hepatitis C specialist, before they even had names, I can speak to the betrayal that some of my patients felt when they found out that they were infected with contaminated blood products which were deemed safe by the medical community. So we must be mindful of risk. This brings me to C109, an investigational spore-based microbiome therapeutic designed to break the cycle of recurrence based on strong scientific rationale. Our phase one through three studies show a consistent observed safety profile. Importantly, Spore purification mitigates the risk of transmission of undetected and emerging pathogens, such as uh, the ones I was just describing. Steer 109 also has a low pill burden of four pills for three consecutive days. You may ask, in our manufacturing processes, we are, we are um, oriented towards producing a purified 
consortia of firmicutes. But why firmicutes? Well, I already discussed the role of firmicutes in modulating bilass metabolism, which, as you know, is critical to the two-phase life cycle of C. diff. However, there's just a very practical reason that unlike vegetative bacteria, spores are resistant to gastric acid, and so they allow formulation into oral capsules. The other issue is that our processes, our manufacturing processes, mitigate risk. We look at comprehensive donor screening as just the essential first step in the, the development of a microbiome product. The C109 manufacturing processes afford a safety net to inactivate pathogens that were not detected or maybe not on anyone's radar screen due to new emergence. So our view is that these rigorous manufacturing processes are a necessary redundancy to mitigate risk. Now, the era of microbiome therapeutics has also ushered in new concepts in pharmacology. When we talk about pharmacokinetics with SEER 109, we're referring to SEER 109 spores germinating and to these metabolically active species um, that um, uh, then can engraft in the GI tract. And when we talk about pharmacodynamics, we're speaking about the impact of those dose species on the broad compositional and functional changes in the gastrointestinal microbiome that are associated with a clinical effect. Now, this brings me to the phase three double-blind placebo-controlled EcoSport 3 trial of this investigational microbiome agent. 281 adult subjects were screened, 182 toxin-positive adult subjects with symptom resolution on 10 to 21 days of antibiotics were enrolled. A 10-ounce glass of magnesium citrate was administered prior to randomization to minimize the residual antibiotic prior to randomization because C109 is a live drug. Subjects were randomized to 109 or matching placebo and stratified by age and antibiotic received. The primary endpoint was recurrence at eight weeks and safety at 24 weeks, and recurrences were also evaluated through 24 weeks. Now, toxin testing was required at study entry and at suspected recurrence to ensure enrollment of patients with active disease and accurate assessment of our endpoints. In contrast to other, uh, some other trials, all our subjects had acute CDI infection. No chronic suppressive antibiotics were allowed. In terms of the baseline demographics, the mean age in both groups was 65. In the SEER 109 arm, there were more females, and as you know, female sex is a well-described risk factor for recurrence. As may be expected, about three-quarters of the population were prescribed vancomycin uh, for their acute infection, and about 60% of the population entered with their third episode of C. diff, while 40% had an even higher number of recurrences within that past year. Now, due to the broad inclusion criteria of ECOSPORE-3 trial, two-thirds of the subjects had one 
or two or more comorbidities, including diabetes, renal disease, malignancy, cardiac disease, COPD, asthma, colitis, host immunosuppression. Now, I have a lot of data to show you, starting with this slide of our top-line data, which some of you might have seen previously. CR109 was superior to placebo in reducing recurrence at week eight, the primary endpoint. Please note that this is a strict ITT analysis that includes all patients who were enrolled in the trial. Recurrence rates were reduced from 39.8% with antibiotics followed by placebo to 12.4% with antibiotics followed by CR109, a relative risk reduction of 68%. Or when viewed by the alternative metric of a sustained clinical response, 87.6% reached this benchmark with CR109 compared to 60.2% with placebo. Now I ask you, I ask all the physicians in the audience, what infectious disease can you think of where we have a 40% recurrence rate with antibiotics alone? It's really unacceptable. Now, the fact that we stratified by age and antibiotics, we were able to do this very important analysis which demonstrates that C109 reduced the recurrence the risk of recurrence compared to placebo regardless of age and regardless of antibiotic. Particularly notable are the high recurrence rates on fedaxomycin alone of 45.8% compared to 4% when followed with C109. However, please note that this analysis included 49 patients on fedaxomycin compared to 133 on the vancomycin side. So these are intriguing data, but we'll need further study. Also, we looked at CDR recurrence rates by existing uh, medical conditions. And as you can see here, CR109 reduced the risk of recurrence compared to placebo, whether you had no comorbidities, one comorbidity, or two or more comorbidities. And when you look at this Kaplan-Meier curve, which is based on all the patients with toxin-proven disease, and when you look at our forest plot, look at what we have depicted here. Age, gender, number of CDI episodes, proton pump inhibitor use at baseline, and no antibiotic use other than um, uh, uh, in terms of um, or not for CDI, that is, other antibiotics, you can see that no matter what those risk factors are, that CIR-109 uh, was more favorable to outcomes than placebo. And another thing I'd like to highlight is that CIR-109 engraftment led to a rapid increase in secondary bile acids. I'll refer you to these new concepts in pharmacology that we referred to earlier. Pharmacodynamics, um, you can see here that we saw that there were um, a, a much better in, in, um, increase in the secondary bile acids with C109. And I also direct you to the logarithmic scale on this graph, 
which speaks to how significant these changes are. And as you would expect, subjects on antibiotics followed by placebo do recover after release from antibiotics, but it takes time. And that's what I want to show you in the next slide that I was thinking of before. When you examine this Kaplan-Meier curve, which is based on all patients with toxin-proven disease, you will see that the steepest part of the curve is within the first two weeks, highlighting the importance of the race to repair. But an appreciable number of subjects had recurrences as far out as 12 weeks, highlighting the importance of adequate follow-up to determine the efficacy of your intervention. I also want to speak to safety. This is a summary of all the um, uh, treatment emergence um, adverse events that we saw in the trial. As you can see, about 90% had treatment-related or possibly related to EAEs, and the most common ones were GI-related. But serious TAEs leading to uh, drug study withdrawal only occurred in one patient in both arms. And there were, though, three deaths in the C109 arm, and for transparency, I just want to highlight them. The first one was a patient with a pre-existing glioblastoma. The second one was a patient uh, who was on Coumadin and had a fall and then developed a subdural hematoma. And the third one was a patient on, uh, who had renal failure on dialysis who developed hypotension and was diagnosed with um, cardiac dysfunction with an EF of 15 to 20 percent and a BNP of 36,000. And um, that particular patient was started on empiric antibiotics, which were discontinued at five days when the patient's uh, uh, cultures remained negative. Um, in terms of treatment emergent side effects by uh, preferred term, as you can see here, most of it is GI related. And I don't have the um, opportunity to go into these data in detail, but as a former academic ID doc, um, I certainly speak to the fact that quality of life in these patients was very impactful affected. And as you can see at baseline, uh, we see this wonderful CBIS32 survey, which is really good at capturing uh, quality of life measures, whether in this overall measures, physical, mental, social, and relationship domains. And this was created by Kevin Gary, who gave a great talk at ID Week on this. And at baseline, you can see that the groups are comparable. But at week one and week eight, I don't think anyone here would be surprised that those patients who have non-recurrence reflected in green have much better quality of life at week one and even better at week eight if they don't have a recurrence compared to those who do. Um, but on the next slide, this is also really interesting. Um, when, when you look at it by treatment arm, you see that patients who had um, placebo uh, again, we see marked improvement in quality of life amongst those with non-recurrence. But in the SEER 109 arm, we also see marked improvement in overall and mental uh, domains, mental, mental anxiety future, mental anxiety current, um, that we see even in those who have recurrence. 
Now, these data are limited by the small number of occurrences in the C109 arm, but they are intriguing nevertheless. So in conclusion, still having trouble advancing these. Oh, oh one more slide. Um, I also would like to highlight uh, the decline of antibiotic resistance genes. As an ID doc, this was an urgent issue when I was in academics, and it still is an urgent uh, issue because the pipeline is dry. And as you can see, with SEER 109, you see a marked decline in antibiotic resistance genes over week one, two, and eight, and this is significant. And again, I point you to the logarithmic scale. So these data are um, exciting and need further follow-up. So to conclude, CR109 was superior to placebo in reducing CDI recurrence at eight weeks with an observed safety profile comparable to placebo. CR109 is designed to enrich perfermacutes while inactivating potential pathogens. Regardless of risk factor status, C109 reduced recurrence of CDI compared to placebo, and C109 is an oral, potentially first-in-class investigational microbiome therapeutic and is a promising partner in a proposed new treatment paradigm for recurrent CDI. Safety data target enrollment in the open-label trial for first and multiply recurrent patients was achieved in September 2021. And I just want to say we're indebted to the patients and investigators of Ecosport 3. Without them, none of this would be possible. We also acknowledge the hard work of the series teams, and I encourage you to see the posters at this meeting. And finally, and most of all, we're grateful to the dedication of Nancy Corrala and the many volunteers of the CDF Foundation who devoted themselves to the education of healthcare providers and the public on this devastating disease. Thank you for your attention. Barbara, thank you so much for a really wonderful overview of uh, C. difficile infection, SER109, the exciting data with SER109 subgroup analyses, mechanism of action, bile salt data. You covered a lot of information uh, in a short period of time, but this is really uh, a beacon of hope for a lot of our patients in the microbiota-based live biotherapeutic space. We're going to keep it in Europe again, um, and I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Tomas Heidegger. Dr. Heidegger is an associate professor at Obuda University in Budapest. He will be discussing ways we avoid transmission of C. difficile infection, as his talk is entitled, Evidence-Based Hand Hygiene in the Post-COVID World. Dr. Heidegger, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, and um, sorry for the little bit of uh, mayhem regarding the schedule. Um, you know, this is the week when uh, Europe and the U.S. just, you know, we have already changed times, and therefore people get messed up in their calendars. But uh, what I would like to briefly talk to you about is really the innovation that uh, we, we are bringing forward and what we can really do uh, with respect to our um, technology. And we have been working busy in the past couple of years with my team to bring from engineering the infection prevention technology. And if we look into the slides, which uh, funny they just disappeared from my WebEx. Okay, just to point out exactly what slide number to go to, uh, Thomas, and we'll be ready to go. I'll do that in one. So we can, ah, well, I'll actually see that now. Wonderful. Okay, so next, please. So, so really, how we, we understand that, that with COVID, uh, hand hygiene and the importance of hand hygiene has changed a lot 
And we have been forgotten about uh, the infections that have been around there. Probably you're all aware that uh, everything is rising. So it's not only that we have to suffer from COVID, but parallel we have to work better to, to fight back HAI. And, and this needs, needs some, some heavyweight support because obviously our current systems of IPC cannot deal with it. Next, please. So what uh, we decided to, to do is, is turn back really 150 years ago when, when Ignaz Semmelweis, a Hungarian-born physician, uh, discovered hand hygiene, and he really was the first one implementing very thorough hand hygiene uh, measures at, his, at the wards at the General Hospital of Vienna. And we all know the story that he managed to cut down to one-tenth of the uh, of the mortality rate uh, in a really evidence-based way. And what he did, he was personally the inspector. For every single moment, every time the, the, his students entered the board, he was checking on them regarding their hand hygiene. Of course, we can't let that be the norm as of today. But if we move to the next slide, uh, we, we can tell you what we have as the second best option. So next, please. So what we decided to develop with my, uh, my colleagues uh, an image processing-based AI-supported hand hygiene assessment tool. Why is that a big deal? Because all of a sudden, we are able to generate a digital information out of your hand hygiene. If you rubbed up well, if you use your gel or foam properly, we can identify that with visualizing and providing feedback on a personal level, so you, you can understand whether you missed any areas on your hand, and of course, whatever pathogens you had remain there, but more importantly, we started to build up a database in the reporting system that feeds directly into the senior management. So next, please. So all of a sudden, what we can do is uh, really, really provide information uh, to, the, to the highest level in the hospital. Uh, can I get the next slide, please? Wonderful. So, oops, one back. I think it's just slow. That's the back. So what, what we, we really do is that uh, putting up a system that you see here, it can roll on wheel, it can be wall mounted, and then ask people to test themselves. And you know what's scary? Healthcare workers, no matter whether they are there from, from Asia, from, from Europe, well, actually we have some similar studies from the US as well, they still fail. So right after training, if we tell them to get checked, around one quarter of your staff gonna fail in covering their complete hands. There is a fundamental issue and you need digital technology to identify. So you can't possibly have thousands of your stuff measured on a routine basis for their hand hygiene unless you have some digital technology. Next, please. Of course, it's not just the software itself that, that provides, but it's really about the, the microbiology background, all the measurements that we did. And over the years, we have collected hundreds of thousands of data points. So we really have a profound understanding how the behavior regarding hand hygiene can change. Next, please. Over the years, uh, we have moved from you know, just doing point-to-point -point or, or word-to-word uh, kind of in random inspections to become kind of like the regular facilitator uh, of hand hygiene. So if you place any of these systems into your wards, obviously people can start um, using it on a regular basis and then they can check for themselves. And what's really important that it takes time. It's like tying your shoelace, like really acquiring 100% and always first, always right hand hygiene technique is not obvious. So we need to support our staff getting in there. Next, please. As you can see, we, we did look into this more thoroughly. We have been conducting our uh, experiments and data collection at ICs, at NICUs, uh, surgical wards, and we have been able to determine crucial factors 
with respect to learning uh, parameters. So we established the learning curve of hand hygiene. We have been able to show that once people acquire a certain level of knowledge, and usually it requires like six to eight training sessions, so not a single, if, if you train your stuff once a year or once per quarter, that's almost nothing. The, the, the effect will not last long. You have to have a continuous education and training program in place for which now we have the evidence. Next, please. What can we do about CDF? Because uh, obvious, obviously, alcohol-based syndromes will, will not do the job for, for us here. Uh, having recognized that fact, uh, early on, we started to focus on uh, running water and soak type of hand hygiene, since the protocol says you should do the same thing for rubbing. And lucky enough, the UV dye that we use as a marker in the alcohol-based hand rub can be just as good when we put it into the liquid soap. So all of a sudden, we created a marker for soap and water-based hand hygiene. So next, please. With that, we have been able to move uh, out of the, the traditional wards area and started to test all around. So this has been a very uh, systematic method with uh, uh, rub, when you try to rub off. I mean, this has been known for 150 years, at least here in Hungary, that the surgeons, when they were practicing, uh, their, their eyes were, they were blinded and then they put some coal uh, on their, uh, so they soiled actually their hands and they had to rub it off. We can do the same thing now again with technology. So next, please. So we are able to demonstrate proper hand hygiene again by a digital technology device. Uh, we started uh, reaching out beyond hospitals. We do believe that it's very important when it comes to hand washing to teach people. So even before COVID, uh, we have had a regular program to go to uh, high schools and then mid schools and eventually then to preschools to teach hand hygiene. And you know that the, the most rewarding moment when a kid, uh, age of 10, looks up and says like, I never knew my hands can be so dirty. So I think really making an impression early on can hopefully facilitate a lifelong remembering what's good. Next, please. Of course, from the scientific point of view, it's more important what you can do with your stuff. So here from uh, two uh, institutions in Hong Kong where they have been teaching hand hygiene, uh, again, uh, with, with soap and border, uh, against CDF, we have seen that um, current measurements show that people, again, after right after training, up 15 or 16% uh, of the time they fail. Failure means that they missed at least one digit on, uh, of their fingers. So significant enough area that if you have any pathogens there, it's going to remain there. Next, please. So uh, over the years, uh, we have uh, collected data on, on hand washing and uh, how people can improve. And I can tell that uh, it's, it's good. So we have been uh, seeing some, some awareness being raised uh, all across the domains. Most of our data coming from, from Europe, but we just started recently in the US uh, with, uh, with two or three sites. So I really hope that we can, we can show you uh, overall how can we improve your existing processes. And down the line, I think hand washing can be just as important as uh, alcohol-based hand rubbing for most of our staff and most of our visitors at the hospital level. So more recently, we extended our scope to visitors and patients themselves as well. Next, please. With that, we realized that we need something that is a biocide product that uh, can be easily washed off. And uh, now this is already available, like a biocide-ready product uh, that you can use this on a regular basis to teach, demonstrate hand hygiene, even with soap and border, 
And the best part is that uh, you can just put it out on the board. Uh, people can use it on a regular basis. And whenever you want, you can, you know, just ask them to, to walk up and st show their hand hygiene. I think this is a tremendous opportunity for the IPC to implement new measures. They have been very successful in developing gamification programs, uh, competitions, and some other ways to challenge uh, people in their hand hygiene, making sure that they enjoy the rewards that they can receive for keeping their hands clean. Next, please. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry for being late, and uh, thank you for listening to us. I just wanted to deliver this message, message rushing through, and I can uh, tell you that uh, our next mission is really to bring this to, to every hospital, every ward, every school, and every hotel, and every um, area where, where we have to have clean hands. So if you have any interest working with us uh, from scientific or any other purposes, please let us know. Thank you very much. Tomas, wow, that was, that was an awesome talk. Um, hand hygiene goes a long way. I think the, the pandemic has really taught us, or at least, the, at least the broader population, a lot of that. I can tell you it was interesting. My children, uh, who were 10 and 12, when the pandemic first hit, they said, wow, the rest of the world is coming up to your level with hand hygiene now. Um, you know, and that's one side of this, and I think it's a key side for protecting ourselves. But then on the other side of this, we have the, the fact that, at least in the U.S., one of the mechanisms that we believe that C. difficile has, has become more prevalent as inflammatory bowel disease and another thing, you know, other diseases in that range um, has to do with over hygiene and uh, over cleanliness. With that being said, I think on an individual level, this is so important and I live my life in this way, washing my hands when I meet people at restaurants. Everyone knows when I meet them, first thing I do when I get to the restaurant is I go wash my hands with soap and water. Um, and, you know, with the pandemic, I think we're seeing more and more people adopting that. Uh, and I think that'll hopefully help the global uh, infection control. So awesome talk. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals.